This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no, I'm not kidding, about the story you're going to hear as part of this episode. This is a Point Pleasant interlude. So, I had been planning to do the Stargate conspiracy in this uh, episode slot, but I was able to take a quick impromptu trip back to Point Pleasant for the first time in four years, and there were some things that I wanted to talk about about that. So we've got a little interlude before the Stargate conspiracy hits you next time. So Point Pleasant. Okay, so I went to Point Pleasant um, this last week early part of this week. If you're listening to this episode when it's released on Friday, August 20th, I was in Point Pleasant um, Monday, Sunday and Monday previously. And I'd been there. Simpson J. Hanover III and I went there on a road trip, part of a sort of Ohio Valley, West Virginia road trip through Flatwoods and Point Pleasant and up to Kecksburg, Pennsylvania back in 2017 when this show was literally, I think, negative five days old. I think we're like five days from the first episode or something like that. And previously, I'd been there very quickly for an afternoon when I was in graduate school after doing research for my master's thesis at the Gray Barker Collection up in Clarksburg. I was able to to run down quick to Point Pleasant and check that out. But I had never gone to the Mothman Museum there. Um, I didn't have time either time. I think both times when I was there, it was not too long before the whole thing closed for the day. And so I didn't want to spend my $4 and 50 cents and not have time to really examine the museum and collection. But this time I had a chance to do that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Mothman Museum, as well as a book I got at the Mothman Museum that I was not previously aware of that is interesting for a couple of reasons. Also, I went out to the TNT area. It's my second time out there. Simpson and I went out there four years ago. This is the first time I went out there by myself, which was a little creepy. I poked around some of the concrete bunkers, and I had something kind of strange happen to me, or I observed something strange or something. You'll hear, actually, you'll hear audio of my on-the-spot reactions to it as I I shared what happened with a couple of Chizo Media um, members of the Chizo Media family. Luckily, I have that audio recorded. So that's interesting. Um, This isn't a show generally where I talk about my own experiences because I've never really had any, right? But um, except, you know, getting targeted by Sherry Schreiner back in the day. But I I think it's interesting and I, uh, I hope you find it interesting as well. But let's start off by talking about the Mothman Museum. Now, I said this on an Instagram story video thing, but there is sometimes a very fine line between a museum and a roadside attraction that uses the word museum in its name. 
I am not down on roadside attractions. I like roadside attractions. I think they're fun. The Mothman Museum tends to be more towards the museum side of that spectrum. It's not it's not a one or the other thing. It's a, it's a spectrum, right? You've got sort of hardcore museum on one side and on the other side you've got you know the fa- world famous mystery spot or whatever else you might have in a in a particular place. Probably Wisconsin. Wisconsin has a lot of that kind of thing. So, the Mothman Museum has some really neat artifacts. And one of the things I was surprised at was not that they had newspaper clippings about the Mothman stuff, not that they had handwritten original copies of the handwritten witness statements from people like Linda Scarberry. That didn't surprise me. I would have been very surprised if they did not have those sorts of things. I was surprised, not in a good way or a bad way, just surprised at the amount of space and items from or dedicated to the Mothman Prophecies movie. I mean, it makes sense. Um, Kind of. I don't know. I'm not sure how many people are introduced to Mothman from the Mothman Prophecies movie anymore. I'm not sure how many ever were. Now, I like the movie. I, I really like the movie. I don't think it's an accurate representation of the Mothman complex of events in Point Pleasant, but it's not supposed to be. It's not a documentary. And lots of documentaries aren't entirely factual either about any number of topics. But they have costumes. They have props. They have all kinds of stuff from the movie, which is cool, right? And I don't know why I was surprised they had these things or devoted space to these because it made sense. But they've got those things. They've got interpretive signs with things like, what was the Mothman? Who was John Keel? Who was Mary Heyer? Who were the men in black? So things like that to sort of give some context and, and sort of identify who people are. They've got the suit that John Keel wore to the opening of the Mothman Museum or the first Mothman Festival. I can't remember exactly which one. So they do a couple things that museums do. It, it, it gives you sort of the material history and image of you hear the things that were from this time and you can look at them and you can examine them without touching them, of course, but it also tells the story and interprets the events, not interprets them and like puts a spin on them, but sort of interprets them in in sort of a broad sense. These are, these are good things and things that museums should do. And it's fun. And they've got all kinds of interesting things. They've got a little room. It's hard to see. It's kind of curtained off. I'm not sure if it's it's entirely done or entirely open, recreating um, a diner from a diner or restaurant from the time in Point Pleasant, sort of the 1960s aesthetic there, which is really neat and, and really nice and interesting. The museum doesn't do anything unexpected, if that makes sense. One of the things I really liked about it, unless I missed something, was that The focus was on Point Pleasant. It was on Mothman, but it was also on Point Pleasant, the place, which I think is very important. I've talked about this before on our Mothman episodes. I don't think you can really separate the Mothman complex of events from that context of Point Pleasant, Southeast Ohio, West Virginia, that area of the Ohio Valley. And people try to. I uh, don't talk about it a lot because I don't like it, and I don't talk about things I don't like most of the time. Um, I don't even like to dislike it, but I am really sort of irritated, nonplussed by, annoyed by uh, the current trend to label 
everything that looks like it might be a flying humanoid of any kind, whether or not it's actually described as looking like anything like what people saw in West Virginia back in the 1960s, labeling those things as Mothman, the whatever city Mothman, the Lake Minnetonka Mothman. That's great. Maybe you want to do some stuff about flying humanoids. Knock yourself out. Whatever gets you through the day, pal. I don't care. But you're just putting Mothman on there so it comes up in search engine hits. It really isn't a Mothman thing. You might try to make it a Mothman thing. You might accept every story that comes down the pike that fits your goal of making it a Mothman thing, but it's not really a Mothman thing. It's a little rant I have about Mothman things. Um, If you're interested in these other Mothman things, Tim Banal, friend of the show, did a great interview last summer, I believe, with Allison Jornlin, who has done extensive research into some of these claims of a Lake Michigan Mothman or a Chicago Mothman. I'll throw a link to that up in the show notes. It's it's fun and interesting and worth checking out. I don't have a problem with with people writing about whatever they want to, but I, I, I do feel that it's a little cheesy to just throw Mothman on there because you know, everybody knows what Mothman is. Nobody knows what your weird thing hovering over the Midwest might be. So I'm glad the museum didn't really get into that stuff at all. Now, I do have sort of a litmus test for museum quality, and it's not definitive. It's just one of many things I look at. But is more square footage devoted to the museum or the gift shop? Um, more museum space is better than more gift shop space. And I will say the Mothman Museum did very well on this. The museum space was far larger than the gift shop. And the museum space was, you know, it was, it was, it wasn't, you know, bursting. It wasn't cramped, but it was, it was full. I would have trouble seeing how they could get more stuff in there without uh, making things kind of difficult to get around. There was a good crowd there when I was there. Good crowd for a Monday anyway, especially a Monday when lots of schools have already started back for the fall. So it was nice to see quite a few people there, even on a weekday. The gift shop, speaking of gift shops, was really extensive with a good selection of of, uh, DVDs and things. There were, you know, the Small Town Monsters documentaries and some other things. They had a lot of books, a lot of the the republished John Keel books that have been out there for a while. republished versions of Gray Barker's The Silver Bridge. Oh, there were some mentions of Gray Barker in the museum, which I appreciated. I would have liked to have seen a display about sort of comparing different versions of the story that have been published. I think that would be interesting and possible to do in a museum display context. You could do that. Um, it's A lot of the, the exhibits were necessarily text-heavy Um, already handwritten witness accounts, newspaper reports, things like that. So looking at Silver Bridge versus the Mothman prophecies, for example, I think would be a fun thing. Maybe not as a permanent exhibit, but maybe as something something temporary. But I did pick up something at the gift shop. I, I picked up a couple things at the gift shop, but really one thing for myself, and that is a book entitled The Thing, Mothman, Devil, or Spirit, by Patricia Gray. This book was published in 2012 um, by Patricia. And it's interesting. The back cover copy caught my attention the minute I um, I saw it. Actually, the cover with the stock photo of a mountain caught my attention. Um, one listener on Instagram 
um, said they think it's Mount Shasta, which I agree with. Stock footage, you know, things like that. But this back cover copy caught my attention as well. What reason did the devil or the Mothman have to pay a visit to our house on that Saturday night or appear to the other folks around Point Pleasant, West Virginia at any time? A few said it was the result of young folks high on drugs. Various ones dismissed it as a hoax. Others declared it had to be a bird. Those who saw it swore it was not a bird. It was more human-like. One man, my husband, who encountered the thing, avowed it was the devil. He described it and said it stood beside our bed next to where I was sleeping. Questions raised and a few answered, such as, did the Mothman hover over the great silver bridge before it fell, and did Chief Cornstalk curse it? On the other side of the world, spirits worked. A spirit carried a woman down the airstrip and put her inside a cave. A dead uncle paid a young man a visit. Part three of the thing tells who the devil is, what he does, where he came from, and what his future is. The thing, Mothman, devil, or spirits, will lead you to the real answer, if you read it to the end. So there's a Mothman encounter, and then it sort of goes all over the place. And, you know, you're on the other side of the world, spirits are moving, and things like that. And, you know, spoiler, the Mothman's the devil. So what this is about, it's a woman and her family and her husband back in the 1960s in West Virginia and other places. They, they lived in, um, in Point Pleasant and some of the time across the river in Ohio. And her husband had a vision of the Mothman. About a month before the Mothman sightings in the TNT area, and they didn't really realize that it was a thing for a long time because they had moved out of the area. By the time it became a thing, it was um, it was interesting. But this is the encounter that the husband had laying in bed one night. I looked over to my right, and there, beside the bed, stood a six-foot, dirty, lunar, or light-gray-colored figure with its wing-like arms extended and something like hands pointing downward. It had a glow. Not illustrious, but a dirty glow. Its eyes were back in its head. I knew the thing was looking at me. I could feel evil communicating something horrible. It definitely was a non-human being. It just stood there, staring at me, discharging evil in the room. My mind and body felt as if they were paralyzed. I could not speak. It was the devil. I knew it. The devil cannot stand against the power of the blood of Jesus. So in my mind, I kept repeating, Jesus, by the power of your blood, protect me. Jesus, by the power of your blood. Little by little, the thing disappeared. It vanished like pouring salt onto a snail. It was the devil. I know it was the devil. Larry, the husband, ends up leaving his job and going into the seminary, becoming a minister, and becoming a missionary in um, Papua New Guinea for a while, which is the other side of the world that is mentioned on the back cover. So they saw, he saw the Mothman, thought it was the devil. This is before he knew about the Mothman stuff. And then the author um, recounts sort of supernatural or spiritual things, negative spiritual things that happened to people that they witnessed in Papua New Guinea. And then they're back in the United States and they realize that the whole Mothman thing was a thing. And that third part of the book where she talks about you know, what the devil is, it's it's basically a very straightforward, traditional orthodox account of Satan. Um, really, I, I want to say nothing to see here, but nothing that you wouldn't expect from a traditionally conservative Protestant pastor's wife telling you about the devil, basically, if that makes sense. She does make this point, and I think it's an interesting point, but maybe not quite in the way she thinks it's an interesting point. 
I wonder if people thought the thing was the devil, would they still search for him? If it is the devil, in time it will no longer be a mystery. Those who seek him will find him. So this connects to, to something I've thought before, and I think I've mentioned it here and there, maybe not on the show here, but in other interviews that I've done on other shows. How hard do we want to look for some of these things? And are we necessarily prepared for what we will experience when we find them? Because we assume, well, we assume a lot of things. We bring into these investigations when people actually investigate. And I'm using we in a very broad sense, not me personally going around looking for things. Although sometimes things find you, as you might see when I tell my little story here in a bit. But we bring in these assumptions. Investigators bring in these assumptions. The things are evil. The things are good. The things are benevolent. The things are malicious. What if it's really bad and you aren't expecting it? And what if bad things happen? I'm not talking probes and abductions. I'm talking sort of existentially horrific things. I don't know. It's interesting. Just the way she phrased that I thought was a little thought provoking. At least it was to me anyway. And there's one final little quotation from the book I wanted to share that if you've been listening for any length of time, you know, is just right up my alley as far as what appeals to me. Many still wonder if the men in black and the UFOs seen by reputable people in the 60s were ploys of a government experiment. Uh, Mr. Gullius, what are the UFOs? Ploys of a government experiment. Yeah, I'm pretty okay with that. We'll be back in a week with the Stargate conspiracy episode that I was going to have done for this week until I decided to go to Point Pleasant. Um, a bit of news. I mentioned this before. Last time, I think I'll be giving one of the presentations at the Strange Realities Conference in Nashville and online October 15th through 17th. You can check it out at strangerealitiesconference.com. And I will be putting the promo audio at the end of this episode. You can check out past episodes and support the show at saucerlife.com or through the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for all the support. Um, the comments, the replies on on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook uh, that we've received over the years. It's um, it's great interacting with you all. We are on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife.com. Our mailing address is Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan, 48480. And now, a story. <laughs> Okay, so I said that I had a strange experience when I was out at the TNT area, which is now McClintock Wildlife Preserve or something like that, and I did. And what I did when I had this weird experience is I called the saucer wife, but I didn't record that. I also recorded a quick video message for Simpson J. Hanover III explaining to him what was going on. So this recording was made that I'm going to play for you now was made within a few minutes of the interesting experience that I had and I haven't changed it or altered it in any way. This is me trudging through the very wet, very rainy McClintock wildlife refuge. 
Okay, so I'm driving down that narrow dirt track where you get back to the, the TNT area, right? And there's this, um, this black Cadillac in front of me. And it pulls off to let me go in front of it, which I thought was weird. So then about a quarter mile up, I pull off and hide and, and they get in front of me. And they go, I'm about 20 feet behind them. They go up over a rise and then around a corner. I go up over a rise and around the corner and the car is not there and there's nowhere it could have turned off. And this is a narrow dirt track and it's muddy and it's deep gravel. And I was in a front wheel drive Mazda and I was having trouble going more than about 15 miles an hour and feeling safe. There's no way this Cadillac like put the hammer down and got literally out of sight. Now, about a half mile up, I did see a car that could have been it, but it was still like 300, 400 feet distant from me. There's no way. If it was any car other than a black, sort of men in black Cadillac, I'd be like, oh, I just wasn't paying attention. But no, seriously. Um, and it's weird. I was, I was confused more than freaked out. But now the more I think about it, the more I'm, the more I'm freaked out. So um, it, it had a, a West Virginia license plate, uh, but I don't know. I, I need to, I wish I would have taken a picture. So I didn't think to take a picture because why would I take a picture of this car that's in front of me? But uh, yeah, weird stuff. And that is what happened. And the reason I didn't want to retell it or tell it again is that the further I got from the actual weird event with this weird car, the more I realized that, you know, what did I see? What did I, was I, was I telling exactly what I saw or was I, was my brain filling in details of things that didn't make sense with things that either did make sense or that sounded interesting, but I continued to remember aspects of it the next day. So, or that evening. So that evening I was trying to fall asleep and I, realized that there was something else that I hadn't mentioned in my message uh, to Simpson earlier. So I called the saucer wife. She was, she, she was, you'll, you'll hear her reaction in a little bit, but um, I also sent a message to, uh, to Samantha and uh, explained what had occurred to me over the course of that evening. Okay. So I'm getting ready to take off here. So I realized this morning that I, um, I had tried to sort of see in the window of the car to see if they were old people or young people or what. And I, this sounds really weird and it sounds really kind of dumb and melodramatic, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't see them. I, I can't remember any distinguishing features whatsoever. And I remember the times like, Oh, it's weird. I can't really see in the windows. I, I see people, but I can't see anything about them. So I don't know. I don't know. The whole thing was, was really weird. I don't know. So yeah, it was strange. And I realized this very likely was not paranormal or anything that is unexplainable. I can't explain it. Because if I could explain it, it wouldn't be a story. It would just be, there was a car in front of me and then it turned off, but I didn't really see who was driving it, but that's not how it felt. And that's not how it sort of played out, but it doesn't make sense really to anybody but me, which is kind of something about the paranormal we should keep in mind. It never makes as much sense 
using sense very loosely to people who hear about the story as it does to people who experience the story. Now, I did, when I got home, talk to the saucer wife for the show um, just on the couch in the studio lounge and got her interpretation of what might have happened. And if you've listened to any of our saucer life or saucer afterlife interactions, you can probably imagine about how this went. Okay, we're here with the saucer wife in the break room of uh, Chizo Studios, right? Break lounge. This is the lounge. Yeah, I was going to say, the dining room would be the break room. What? Okay. Am I, am I ruining the mystique again? Yeah, yeah, you're ruining the mystique. It's a studio. It's, it's not a quiet suburban house. Um, Apologies. Yeah, so you've heard my story of the Phantom Cadillac and my inability to at all perceive the occupants when I tried. Um, what are your thoughts on this bizarre happening? Okay, first question. Do you believe me? I believe you feel like you had an experience. Okay, do you believe that I saw this Cadillac and then it was gone? Yes. Okay. Do you believe that I had a weird mind fog where I could not perceive any features of the occupants of the car? Is this the same time of type of brain fog you have when you go to the grocery store and forget the half the list that I give you? No, it's a different kind of brain fog. <laughs> it's a different kind of brain fog. Okay, so what, what do you think might have happened? Told you what's going on. Um, the listeners have heard uh, the account that I sent to Simpson and to Samantha about the two different aspects of it, the, the occupant. I didn't record ours because I was talking to the phone at the time. Um, so what do you think happened? What's your best explanation for, your best normal explanation for what might have happened? I think the car turned off in somewhere and you just didn't realize it. And that's all that happened. Okay. I mean, that's, yeah, that's probably the most, if, if it wasn't the Men in Black or some kind of Phantom Cadillac, that's probably the most likely sort of prosaic explanation for what happened. Um, have you ever had anything weird happen? No. Not I at all? I haven't. Mm -mm. No weird noises you couldn't identify? No ghosts? No lights in the sky? No. I'm pretty boring. Well, that, that, it's not, you know, what are you wearing right now? Um, I'm wearing this great shirt. It's the Mothman search team shirt, and it's a tie-dyed t-shirt that you brought back for me. Yes, like I said, I did get things at the, uh, at the gift shop. So, okay, so we've got the Saucer Wife's take on what I experienced. Um, it boils down to what I say about a lot of experiencers. I believe that they believe something weird happened but it doesn't necessarily mean anything weird happened. If they were, I mean, okay, say it was the men in black. Yeah. Okay. Wouldn't the men in black follow you? They tried. Okay, but wouldn't they be like, no, no, it's okay, we're going to follow you instead of going around you? Well, they didn't go around me. I ducked back and then so, well, maybe they thought I disappeared. You know what? 
there's probably some old people in a Cadillac somewhere in West Virginia telling the story about there was this silver car from out of state and it was behind us and so we let him go around because we were, we were slow. going really we were slow going really slow and then somehow he got in front of us he got behind us again how many times have you been behind an old lady driving let's say a huge Cadillac and you're like there's no one driving that car because you she can't see over the wheel the um steering wheel yes but I looked in the side windows as it went by Maybe she was just so tiny you couldn't see her. There were two people. Two okay. entities. Okay. Entities. Where was this road going? It was going through the McClintock Wildlife Reserve, which is now on top of the toxic waste dump that was the munitions manufacturing area. So there might have been fumes in the air that caused you... Oh, oh, oh. I'm just no, kidding. No, no, There were no fumes. Um, yeah, okay. Well, thank you for your insight oh, into as this. As little uh, as it was. Well, it's you, well, you know about as much about what happened as I did. Or as I do. So, a weird experience. And hopefully somebody will write this up in some Men in Black book after hearing this. And I'll be... One of those, one of those weird, random men in black stories that probably weren't anything but get enshrined in men in black lore. So the next time you come home from the grocery store and have forgotten multiple items on the grocery list, men in we... black. Yeah. Okay. Men in black. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you. So what happened? Who knows? What is clear is that if this was the men in black, they weren't after me. I hope that whoever they were after is okay. Thanks for listening. Remember to tune in next time when we will have the Stargate conspiracy. Thanks to the saucer wife for putting up with me talking about the phantom Cadillac for the last few days. Our associate producer is Simpson J Hanover. The third, the saucer life is a production of Chizo media, LLC Chizo media. Our heart is with the people till next time. Just stay out of the TNT area. It's weird and creepy and they're watching you from the bunkers. In 2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Raines, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Ren Collier. Tickets available at StrangeRealities.com. It's going to be amazing. <laughs>